Welcome to the Red Hand Files for lovers of artist Nick Cave's regular letters where he responds to fans' questions. My dad and I enjoyed the letters so much we decided to create the Red Hand Files podcast to discuss our thoughts and share it with you. You can read the Red Hand Files at www.theredhandfiles.com or follow the link in the show notes. Hello and welcome to the Red Hand Files. I am Hannah Bevan and with me... I'm Adam Bevan. That's my dad. And we are looking at issue 211. So our first question is how how is Elle from Delilah in Paris? And the second part of the question is my twin brother is dying at 23. I don't know what to do or feel. I feel so angry at the world and upset at the fairness, unfairness of everything. I keep thinking about my next birthday, how it will be the first one I spend alone. I know you didn't go through exactly the same thing, but you went through something similar. So I just want to ask, how can I stop feeling this pain and anxiety and sadness? Will it get better? From Madeline in New York City. Mm, It's a big one today, isn't it? Very big. Very big. um, The fact that these two questions are wound together, and especially once you've had a look at the response, it becomes uh, clear how nicely these two questions from these two individuals fit. Mm. Um, Obviously, Nick Cave writes these letters to fans or answers these questions from fans in his regular letter, The Red Hand Files, which we encourage everybody to subscribe to. And fans ask open questions that he tackles and answers, many of them often uh, reaching and poignant as this one is. Um, I think we'll unwind how his son, um, his youngest son, who was a twin with Arthur, who tragically died um, back in 2015 or 16, I can't quite exactly remember, sorry, but... uh, and it's a, a, a nice, um, it's nice that uh, Nick lets us in and is able to discuss these things, especially when there are people going through something remarkably similar. Um, he's lost a twin son and has watched the other son develop as he's waded through that. And of course, here's somebody who has a brother with perhaps some sort of terminal illness. So, uh, we sensitively want to add our thoughts and expansion to this discussion. If we have any, you know, I don't feel quite like Mm. I, I have any authority or, uh, or, or experience that qualifies me, but that's the nature of our show. You know, we talk about these things as we always have started off doing this over the phone and thought it'd be great to, to bring this to this platform. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> hmm. did you have anything you wanted to start off with Hannah or, uh, would you rather I take a bite first? Yeah. Take a bite first. Mm, okay. Uh, first of all, one of the things, you know, as a parent, you would have to place losing a child at the 
very top of the list of things that you don't want to experience. It's often been said that no parent should have to bury a child. And what's impressive here from Nick is he's answering this letter, placing the closeness of the twins and Earl's experience at the top without hardly a mention of himself, except mm. his concern and his wife Susie's concern for their remaining uh, twin, um, Earl. So that's the first thing is I, I really appreciate that he's put aside the personal things here, um, except for in as much as it relates to being a father. But he talks about that his greatest fear was how it would affect Earl. And the good news is that while they were poised to um, pick up the pieces and even the, the school, it was school holidays when um, Arthur passed away, that when they came back to school in the school year, they, they, the school was getting things in place to help. Um, no doubt he had a lot of friends there at the school, but also uh, for those who lost Arthur, but, but Earl as well. And I think now if we can speak about uh, Earl briefly, he said, on the morning Earl returned to school, he stood in the kitchen and said to me and Susie, whatever happens now is for Arthur, his twin brother. Um, I had no idea at the time what that quite meant, he said, but he talks then about Earl taking that purpose that he was going to live the remaining uh with the, with, the, with the energy of his life and do it for his twin brother, somebody he would share his mother's belly with and life and the closeness of twins as they all, almost always, must be an exception or two out there, but uh, as, as they are. And then he really did go to applying himself and he says he applied himself at school, he fell in love with drama, uh, got a couple of parts in a film and then continued to develop as a young man. And they kept waiting for him to fall apart somewhere, but it never happened. He really did take this mission to heart to go and live his life for his brother or with his brother. Um, mm. you know, I can't help being the, uh, Elvis fan, but to think of how much in film and documentary and literature, Elvis was a twin whose brother died at birth with him and he was left. And of course, Elvis went on to become this gigastar that he was and is. And he was always told, you see it in the Elvis film that um, uh, Baz Luhrmann did uh, as well, where there is this reference to, you've been endowed with the power of the lost br brother, right? And um, in Earl's case, He's set it and set his sail and has, has gone off and done it. What a remarkable thing. Yeah. So there's my first thought. Mm. Yeah, it was so 
beautifully written in this letter, um, the openness. And I think from my time reading the Renderhaden files, maybe the most vulnerable one to be able to speak about. It's one thing, I think, to speak of your own experiences, but then to speak of your families and people that you want to protect and to be able to share their experiences is so vulnerable and so powerful Mm. in it that it is he never shies away from the fact of how much grief exists in himself and in his family it's not forgotten in the slightest it sits besides all of them and that that is just the grieving process is that you just learn to sit beside it, which seems so unfathomably large, I'm sure, when it first happens, how you get through that. Um, But at some point, life, these choices are made about how you want to start moving through life besides that grief. Yeah. And might we all take a leaf out of Earl's book as a young man at the time of 15, I think having lost your best mate in your twin brother, no doubt, uh, how he managed to reshape things and sounds like how he got on with it. And he does say here that he ended up looking on in awe as he grew into an adult born along by a promise he had made one morning to his stricken parents. So the, the, the power of that decision that he internalized and went out and manifest, you know, I guess it's purpose. I guess it's still finding purpose. That grief must be born, but what comes out of it? And even Nick himself mm-hmm. started writing again through this process, you know, after he'd come out through, through writing these letters, he found a voice and a purpose. And we see it a lot in these letters, how he's reaching out Mm. to so many, um, with a spectrum of questions from jolly fun to, um, grief and loss and all things always, it seems to be one of his central points and philosophies and all of this, he, he says, our existence is uh, itself is kept aloft on an infinity of absence. All our lives are lived on the boundless tide of sorrow of those that have passed before the boundless tide of sorrows. <clears throat> mm. You're younger, Hannah. Have, have you, do you, do you relate to that? Are there any sorrows for loss that you bear yet. I think when you're younger, you, you don't often, you know, you haven't lost a uh, brother or sister or. I haven't, I haven't lost, had a grief like that, having to lose someone. And I guess I've been really researching into grief a lot recently because it is one of those things that completely alters people's worlds and it's not a choice. It just must be done. And your whole life must be shifted around grief. And the issue is, not the issue, there's no right or wrong way to grieve, but 
when grief is not spoken and when it's shamed or people find it too painful to give air is when I guess it's that that suffering and that destructive behaviour we were talking about in the last episode. But to give grief its space to exist with you, to speak of the unspoken, and I think it's like it's widely kind of spoken that Western cultures are just not good with grief. We outrun it. We pretend it's not there. We don't celebrate people's lives in the same way um, a lot of other cultures do. Um but it's magnificent to kind of see how people move through their lives after grief yeah. because there is such a beauty to people that allow it to sit with them, do not shame it, do not um, allow it to be part of their story and not try and hide from it. Especially it's a lot of like um, I'm a lifeline volunteer, so the crisis and suicide hotline. And whenever I speak of someone that mentions why they're feeling that way and it's grief that's come up for them, sometimes it's a partner they've lost a decade earlier, I will always ask them, do you want to tell me about that person? Mm. Because often they just have not ever been able to talk about them. This person that still sits with them, so like the last person they got off a phone with, but they feel like their time is up and they can't, speak about that person anymore when that they very much still exist wholeheartedly for everyone. Grief must be spoken of. Yeah. And it must be carried because there is mm. no replacement for the person, but there can be an honoring by this, this idea, one idea, there can be a replacement by living for them. There can be a replacement mm. for living for them. No, I never, um, with, with, with your grandpa, with pop, my dad, I mean, we like a couple of rams button heads all the time. I don't think I saw eye to eye with him on, much at all, but there's only one visible picture in my place and it's of, uh, well, I've got some pictures of all you children on the fridge and one of the bedrooms, but in, in the kitchen, there is one of dad with you and, uh, Memphis, your brother, when you were young and really little. In fact, I reckon you were eight or nine and Mem's a baby and laughing as you often, often did with him. And the amount of times I just say, Hey dad, or I go down to the sauna, you know, I got a sauna at home. And I think cause my dad was sauna mad. It was the one thing that we did bond over until he started <laughs> getting everybody offside in the sauna. But yeah, <laughs> I, I have these places to think of him often and that I'm there, you know, I still, I'm still a practicing martial artist because of my dad, I'm still, um, you know, have a deep connection to family. I think because of my dad's example around those things and in the sauna. So there are these moments to 
think of those that have gone before and, and carry them. And we have to find a way to build that in, that with the grief, there can be a, an honouring or some other life system of um, purpose through what we, we do. And, and that might be a good place to read this out where Nick says, uh, whether we realise it or not, our lived condition is forever saying whatever happens now is for them. This is how we honour humanity itself as the living testimony of those no longer with us. We who remain continue. Mm. I remember years ago there was a documentary that was on uh, SBS, on Australian sort of uh, television, and it was, I think it was called Millennium, but it was back in the 90s. And there was this one tribe of people as one of the, you know, uh, tribal communities they looked at who, as you came forward in a generation, so when you were newly married, you would move forward. And then when you, your parents, um, your, your parenthood had kind of done its child rearing, but now you move forward again. And then when you were the senior elders and the elderly of the tribe, you move right to the front of this cliff face. Everybody was moving towards the cliff face and in the cliff face is where they buried all the bodies. So the dead and perhaps even symbolically your own death was always before you. That the idea of coming from the back and moving through those generational things as we all do, we'll start as children and we lose grandparents, then we lose parents. And then we're next thing, we're the old people with hopefully, you know, some people around us, grand, grandkids or children or, or, or people of great importance in our lives um, or even our memories of those people, we move towards that cliff face, but we have to live with some purpose, keeping them much like that tribe ever present in our hearts and minds and memories, uh, which is the joy and the, the grief. But as I said, I'm not really qualified. Nick is. And yeah. Any, anything else? there that stood out to you? Mm. Oh, I just took it as like one whole big piece, I suppose. And mm. just my big takeaway was the openness of it. It just seems like, it's inspiring to watch people be open with their lives yeah. in ways that we're a culture obsessed with youth. We're a culture obsessed with like turning our backs against these more, I don't even want to say taboo. That's not the right topic, but difficult discussions. People don't know how to navigate grief and loss and, and suffering with people, but he leans in and, yeah. That's our humanity is in these moments. He does not say it's an easy road. He's just offering his <sighs> son's example as mixed in with these dub this double question that he's laced together. But he says, you will mm -hmm. miss your brother, Madeline, maybe more than you can imagine. You may f rail against the world and the terrible unfairness of it. Yeah. And he talks about 
bond not ending though, but that the bond with your brother is cosmic and eternal. I think there is something in that. Uh, I don't don't know that I want to expand on that, but there is something. There there are these, you know, the butterfly effect. There are these things, these waves of our lives shared and those who have gone before. And at the end, I think the nice message that is in here, if we can use Earl again, is he said, um, I wish you well. And I know all who read this send you and your brother all the love in the world. And Hannah and I certainly feel the same, Madeline, you know, mm. the uh, imminent loss of your brother by the sound of things. We, we send our love as well. But he says he showed his answer that he had written to Earl to see if he was comfortable with it. And he said, Earl asked me to send his love too. A beautiful, complex, earned love that is brought to you from the other side of devastation through the spirit of his brother. All mm -hmm. of us here and beyond are with you both. So, yeah, thank you, Earl, for completing that part of life's journey to make it to the other side. Not where he's forgotten, not where he's not spoken mm. about, but you've lived and given great honor to your brother's life force. Mm. And may we all do the same. May we all take those who we've lost in our hearts and speak of them regularly, think of them regularly, maybe even speak to them regularly, you know? Uh, yeah. I speak of other people's grief when I've been able to see inside it. And it's like my own strength, I think, from all the times I've connected with people. It's actually given me so much strength to listen to how people move through their lives. And I haven't even had to experience a big grief, but I feel almost like I've got some tools in the toolbox just from sitting beside people in their pain. And it comes for us whether we run from it or not. We all move towards that cliff, that metaphorical mm -hmm. cliff face where we view our death sometimes through those that are um, old and we've taken our place and sometimes we're struck down while we're young or others around us are. And uh, But again, um, we have to find purpose and in some part of it, live for them. That's, that's one, mm. one take and, uh, hope that we, we come through the other side with some, some beautiful wisdom and jewels in our crown. Mm. I don't know if we've done it justice and whether we're, we, we know we're not apt enough to speak on it, but, um, here's my thoughts. Anything else? No, just uh, an eternal gratitude for for Madeline, Earl, and Nick's openness. Yeah, it's a gift. It is a gift, and to all those who have lost and still carry that grief, or might have uh, some some grief on the way that they're aware of, we um, 
we send our love and hope that uh, the journey brings some um, healing and, and, and meaning and, and purpose that is bigger than the grief, as big as the grief is. Well, uh, by way of wrapping up, thanks again to Steve Satongi, our fabulous producer man. We uh, are grateful for his gifts in all of this. And like, subscribe somewhere, wherever it is, to uh, the podcast, wherever you're listening to it or watching it maybe on YouTube. Um, find us on Instagram too. We, we put up some shorts there, Red Hander Files. And go to Nick Cave's The Red Hand Files that we're talking about. Subscribe there to get access to more of these charming, interesting, uh, lovely responses to fans that he writes. And uh, until next time, goodbye from me. And goodbye from Hannah. Bye for now. We'll see you soon. <laughs>